Well, if you would, remain standing and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's some black Bibles around the room on these half walls, and we'd encourage you to go up and get one of those and return to your seat and turn to the middle of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms, and you'll find Psalm 131. It's a song of ascents of David. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us faith to believe. Give us a hunger to pursue you. Give us comfort from above that comes only through Jesus' blood in righteousness. Glorify yourself in this place today as you bless the preaching of your word. Amen. You could be seated. John Calvin began his classic systematic theology, which he titled The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He began that with the sentence, All sound wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. All true wisdom in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I personally find it easier at times to study God than to study myself. I find it more pleasurable to learn things about God than to learn something new about myself. In 1999, Sarah and I had to move back to the States from England where I was a grad student. We ran out of money to fund the education and I was facing some health issues. And so we moved from quaint, old Oxford, England, to live with parents with a newborn. And I would soon start painting as a union painter in Denver. Just a couple of days ago, Sarah, in fact, found my ID for being a union painter. And it had this priceless picture on it. I don't have it with me today to show you, but... You can imagine that, uh, that famous picture now of the gymnast girl who uh, got silver at one of the Olympics, and there on the platform when she was getting silver and not gold, she became famous for that pouty face, lips to the side. I was doing something like that, not quite as bad. It was during that transition time that a pastor friend of mine said something I don't think I'll ever forget. After I gave him an update on our transition, he said, well, I guess you've learned some things about yourself in all this. Learned some things about myself. I recoiled. I don't need to learn. I didn't say this out loud. I thought, I don't need to learn anything about myself right now. I need to figure out what's next. I need to provide for my family right now. I, I need to get busy for the Lord. I, I need a spot to serve the Lord. And how about a little sympathy for us? This has been hard. 
Well, it took many months before I realized that the Lord was teaching me things about myself, things that no formal education could ever teach. He was weaning me off of ungodly expectations. He was weaning me off of misguided ambitions, which I said were about him and for him, but weren't altogether for him. He was chipping away at my pride, and he was relentless and unwavering about working on my pride until I was willing to stop comparing myself to others or envying others and to take a look at myself. The Lord was relentless in working through me, or on me rather, until I was willing to talk to him about me, not just my circumstances. In Psalm 131, King David begins by acknowledging God. Oh Lord, he begins this prayer. He's going to do some self-assessment before the Lord in this psalm. And he'll come to a legitimate and true awareness of his own humility. Which I know sounds funny. You're not supposed to say that you're humble. We'll talk about that later on. But whatever the results of his self-assessment were, it's foundational for us to see that he started with the Lord. Just like our last psalm, Psalm 130, which we saw last week. There's no point in hiding our iniquities from the Lord as if we could hide them from the Lord. You bring them to him. You say, oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? The only hope for forgiveness in Psalm 130 is in acknowledging our trouble without his forgiveness. So in our psalm today, the only hope of a right understanding of ourselves is that we assess ourselves with God, before God, and we talk to God. Where else could we go but to the Lord? Notice it's in all caps. Yahweh, that's his name, the covenant-keeping, loving, eternal creator God. That's the one who alone can show us our hearts, and more than that, he can actually lead us to humility. And I know that's a scary prospect for some of us, the thought of being humbled or being led to humility. But we'll see, it's good, it's sweet, and it's right. It's before the Lord that David renounces pride. That's verse 1, renouncing pride. We have three verses and three points. Renouncing pride in verse 1. And notice as you look down in your Bibles, David gives three statements which renounce pride. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous. Each phrase gets at something distinct but related to pride. My heart is not lifted up. A lifted heart may sound like a good thing, like an encouraged heart. And sometimes in Scripture, it is a good thing. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. But usually in Scripture, a lifted heart is pride. It's a proud heart. The heart, of course, in Scripture, isn't that organ in the middle of your chest that pumps blood through your body. It's the whole inner self, emotions, thoughts, decisions. It's the seat of the will. 
and feelings. That's who we are. And so a lifted heart is a proud heart because it's not in the place where it was made to be, but it has been exalted by the one who has that heart. Now, with each of these three statements, which renounce pride, we're also going to learn something about pride. And for that matter, we can also pause at each one of them to consider what the Bible says about pride. We might remember that pride is the most basic and most foundational of all sins. It's in the heart, and it's in the heart of every one of us. It's been surmised from Scripture and from the saints of old that pride is that one sin that connects all others. Martin Luther said, the sin underneath all other sins is pride. C.S. Lewis said, the utmost evil is pride. All others are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil came to be the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is a universal problem, and it proudly stands behind all other sins. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, to know what he knows. And so they joined the devil in presuming to know better for themselves than God knew. Again, every one of us since then has gone the same way. We're born on a hell-bent mission of playing God with pride at the steering wheel. Pride comes before destruction, the Bible tells us. God opposes the proud, we're told. Yes, he does give grace to the humble, but pride's a big problem. So Christian, by God's grace, follow David's lead here and afresh renounce pride. Don't let that heart be lifted up. Even though like an Albuquerque hot air balloon, our hearts just want to rise up. It's natural. It's the way we're born. We've got to tether it. We've got to anchor it. We've got to pull it down. David says, my eyes are not raised too high. If the first phrase was just a simple statement of humility, the second is humility in relation to others, to other people. You see, the proud have lifted themselves up in order to look down on others. They have haughty eyes. Isaiah could say to proud Hezekiah, Why have you lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? Haughty eyes are an affront to a holy God because he is on high and he looks down from heaven on all his creation. When we exalt ourselves and when we demand respect and attention, if not worship from others, we take the place of God. Worse than that, we make ourselves out to be a pathetic version of God because we hold all other rivals in contempt. We look down on others nastily, judging them, even though we're fellow sinners like them. We jockey for power upon our little pathetic thrones of clay. 
Or maybe your pride looks differently than that, but it's still pride. Did you know that when we're desperate for others to give us approval and affirmation and adulation, that's pride too. One form of pride looks strong and self-imposing. I lift myself up in order to look down on others. Diotrephes in 3 John loved to have the preeminence. But another form of pride looks more needy, more fragile, and it's easily offended or, or hurt when recognition or praise or attention isn't given enough or soon enough. That's pride too. This pride business is sneaky. It is sneaky stuff. Don't think for a minute that pride hasn't infected you. Don't think for a minute that you've whipped pride and you don't struggle with it anymore. The question is what version of it you have, but it's pride at root. That reminds me, what of David's bold statements in this psalm which sound like just that, like he's whipped this thing called pride? My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised one of the things Christians seem to know about humility is that you can't claim it. As soon as you claim it, you prove you don't have it. It's unlikely any Christian will soon write a book called Humility and How I Achieved It. There's the story of the Sunday school teacher who wanted to give out a ribbon for the student who was the most humble but he had to take it away from the student as soon as the student put it on. You see, we've all heard bad jokes about humility and being humble or the lack thereof. Not just jokes, but serious statements as well. There aren't many books out there on Christian humility, but the few that are out there and are good usually begin with the author confessing that he's not humble. And of course, what else could he say? I wouldn't recommend otherwise. But that's what makes David's claims in Psalm 131 so startling. If I can put it plainly, if these lines of verse 1 weren't in Scripture, but in some other book, we would suspect that this person overstates the matter, is presumptuous, is maybe naive, or even is proud, as they say they're not proud. But it is Scripture. And it being here in the Psalms, it's held out as an example for us to learn from and to imitate. So how should we think of David's claims? Well, though David states this emphatically, I don't think he claims his humility is truly perfect. I don't think he implies that it's with unwavering consistency that he can say this. I think it was true generally, and hence it was true. In verse 1, he is renouncing pride. And he'll have to keep renouncing pride until he is in heaven. He's a sinner like us. He is here embracing humility, holding nothing back. He is here commending humility to others by way of an unblushing, unqualified example. And David was a unique example of humility if you read through his story in First and Second Samuel. 
Remember, it starts out with him as the shepherd boy out taking care of the sheep. And, and David did not come in because he was looking for the anointing as God's new man, as Israel's next king. David, in the next chapter, did not show up on the battlefield on that fateful day to make a name for himself. It's when he heard the Goliath's taunts, the giant's taunts, that he was incited because of his zeal for the Lord. It was the Lord's fame and his testimony and honor that motivated David to go down and fight the giant. Even with the anointing of the prophet already upon him, Remember that the kingdom remained in the hands of Saul for many more years to follow. It's estimated that maybe for 10 years, David was on the run as Saul sought to kill him. And even when David had the opportunity to reverse it, to take out the wicked king and gain the kingdom for himself, he didn't presume upon the Lord, but instead he trusted the Lord and he wouldn't take the, the throne by force. Even after Saul's death, David becomes king, but only over one of the 12 tribes. It's estimated that it was another seven years before the other 11 tribes came to recognize David as their king. He didn't take it by force. He didn't force them under his rule. And once he was their king, he didn't seek retribution well, maybe he did. I think there was one, one guy he killed. I think that's 2 Samuel 5 or so. But he's generally humble. He only killed one guy after the coup didn't go so well for them. He's generally really humble. He was not a, a heart lifter or an eye raiser. He's the, he's the counterpart, the foil to King Saul, who is proud. And proud in such weak ways. Yeah, sure, David showed forth some weakness as well as he prayed passionate, tear-filled prayers, no doubt, asking for God to intervene, to act, to see, to help. But he also waited and waited on the Lord. He didn't presume to know God's timing and didn't presume to know better than God about how the plan would come to pass. And I think all that helps us understand that third line of verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, this is the king speaking. This is the king that led Israel to its glory days. This is the, the king who had a famous song about him. He had killed his tens of thousands. This is David mighty in battle and skilled upon the harp. This is David who was given promises in 2 Samuel 7 that continue to ring out in all the world and will so for all eternity. This king. This king also knew his limits. Even for great King David, there were things too great and too marvelous for him. David knew well, he wrote his own copy of the Bible, he knew well, Deuteronomy 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. Yes, the revealed things belong to us. He has revealed some things to us. We should know them, we should know them well, we should know them deep and well. But there are secret things. And what the Lord keeps secret, those are the things that are too great and too marvelous for us. David refused to play God. 
He refused to play a rival to God by questioning God sinfully. We can contrast David, not just with Saul, but also with Job. Job, remember that book, starts out with Job as a sufferer, suffering righteously and humbly and carefully. But eventually, under that great and mysterious suffering, Job began to question God. And then his questioning of God began to be accusing of God. And eventually it got to the point that Job's mantra was like this. If I could just get God into court, if I could just have an unbiased judge hear my case and his, I know he'd side with me. If I could just get him into court and ask him questions and require answers from him, then we'd be getting somewhere. Job got his day in court with the Lord, but it didn't go like he thought it would. God questioned him. God demanded answers from him. God answers to no one. For two long, brutal chapters, God questioned Job with unanswerable questions about his creation and his wisdom and his power. And it was only then that Job understood that there are revealed things and there are secret things. He responded in chapter 42, I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Suffering believer, be careful to not occupy yourself with things that are too great and too marvelous for you. Do not demand of God answers as if he owes you that and as if you could fully understand it if he told you everything that he's up to in his sovereign plan currently involving billions and billions of people stretching through millennia and millennia. Yes, of course, concern yourself with all of the great and wonderful things that are revealed in his word. Search, ransack, dig deep, hold nothing back. Yes, concern yourself with the opportunities and challenges the Lord puts before you. Know that Psalm 131 isn't calling any of us to be mousy or spineless or lazy or unthoughtful. It doesn't discourage planning or intellect or working or even attempting great things for God, to quote William Carey. But it does require that you place all of that under him, all of that before him. It requires that you daily know that you are not the Lord. So this should squash self-ambition, self-promotion, self-focus. Our pathetic attempts at jockeying for power and position or maneuvering for spotlight or demanding recognition or fishing for compliments. We need to give up on it. Give up on your timeline. Give up on your plan. Dare I say it? Give up on your dreams. 
Now there's an asterisk by that one. Sure, have your dreams. Plan your plans. And if the Lord wills, you'll do this or that. If the Lord wills, be willing to give up your dreams. You are not sovereign. And it is a hopeless vacuum of futility when there is the self at the center of our world. Let us look to the Lord and say with David, Oh Lord, my heart's not lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous. And there are many things great and marvelous. When we renounce our pride, we begin to learn contentment. So secondly, in verse 2, learning contentment. Verse 2 says, But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. What a strange but beautiful picture. Strange when we think about a, a man talking about being a weaned child on a mother's lap. But beautiful once we get the analogy. A weaned child is no longer expecting or demanding or needing a mother's breast milk. They're past that stage. They're past that stage of being transfixed on milk. Baby, babies, uh, well, milk to them is baby crack. It's crack for babies. That's what it is. Except it's really good for them. It's not bad for them. God's made it that way. He's made them to be restless for it. To be on a mother's lap with milk close by. A baby has a one-track mind. You've seen it if you've had an infant in your home. They root around. They grab and they clutch. They need milk. They want milk. And as good as a mother's milk is for her baby... It's not the long-term plan. They have to be weaned. And a weaned child can be on a mother's lap, calm and quiet, and enjoying mom's lap for just that. Not restless for milk, no rooting around, just at ease, calmed and quieted with its mother. Of course, getting there to that weaned stage wasn't easy. The weaning process is hard. I don't remember my weaning days, but I imagine that I didn't like it. No child understands it. It doesn't seem to make sense that mom would withhold something that's good and introduce something that's new and foreign and hard. But in the process, not only does the baby move on to solid food, as every boy and girl must do, but they also learn to trust mom. A child being weaned must learn to trust mom. A child who is weaned can enjoy mom in a different and more mature way. A child weaned has learned to calm and quiet themselves in mom's presence. By the way, the point here isn't that God is weaning us off of something specific. 
Though he surely does that, he weans us off pride or, or a certain idol or self-reliance. But the point here is that he weans us to trust and enjoy him. Contentment seems hard, if not impossible, even though the Apostle Paul said he was content. Christian, we can be calmed and quieted by the Lord and before the Lord. We can learn to be content with him. Not perfectly so, but genuinely so. We can trust him for what he gives us today. We don't have to keep rooting about as though we're infants. You don't need yesterday's milk. You can trust him for what he offers you today. He himself is better than all his gifts combined. Jonathan Edwards used to ask his congregation, My people, do you love God or do you love his gifts? Now we should enjoy his gifts and thank him for his gifts and use his gifts. But his gifts must never become God. They must never confuse the gift for God. God's the gift giver. God is God. And there's none besides him. St. Augustine said in the 5th century, to God, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. He's made us to be restless. He's made us to find rest in him. Remember the Mary and Martha story? Martha, hard at work in the kitchen to prepare a meal for Jesus. Certainly not a bad thing, but Jesus said when she complained that she was worried and troubled about many things. Her sister Mary, on the other hand, sat at Jesus' feet. Presence, nearness, learning, listening. And Jesus said that she had chosen the better thing and it wouldn't be taken from her. Jesus said, one thing is necessary. He is. We must rest in him. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said that he is gentle and lowly in heart, and he will give us rest for our souls. Oh, the alternative is so prevalent today, but it's so hopeless the alternative to resting in God through Jesus, that's the world around us. That's what drives our relentless busyness, our noise, our stimulation, the need for distraction and constant entertainment. It's not Psalm 131. David Paulison encourages us to think of the anti-psalm of Psalm 131. He says you can get to the meaning of a psalm by thinking of its anti-psalm. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. 
So of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant. I'm restless with demands and worries, and I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Do you feel that kind of inner noise? God is kind to every now and then show you the heavy vibrations going on inside of you and outside of you that are driving you to something else. Jesus said you must come to him like a child. You must come to him dependent. You must come to him little. You must come not with greatness. That was the discussion had in Matthew 18. The disciples came to him and said, Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus took a child, put the child in their midst and said, Unless you turn and become like one of these little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You must get low. It's the only way in. In Mark 10, when James and John came to Jesus to ask if they could have the right hand and the left hand next to his throne in his kingdom, Jesus said, oh, that's how it works in the world. That's how the rulers of this world operate. They stake claims and they vie for positions. But it shall not be so with you, Jesus said. Why? Well, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to know why you don't vie for position and jockey for power? You look at the cross. Jesus came to be a ransom, a payment. And there's our answer to the problem of pride that infects us all so universally and so deeply. There's a ransom for sin. That's what happened on the cross. That and that alone is the way in which proud rebels like you and me can be forgiven, acquitted, loved, and accepted. And we can see that anticipated in our psalm if we zoom out just a bit out of Psalm 131. If you were with us last week, this will be easy for you. Did you notice that Psalm 130 and 131 seem to have a few things in common? They both end with hope. There seems to be a progression within them. Yes, Psalm 130 is anonymous. 131 is written by David. But they were almost certainly put next to each other by an editor editor later on, for the purpose of showing the connection between the two. Here's the connection. There's no humility or calm and quiet soul, as it says in Psalm 131, without the forgiveness of Psalm 130. Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait on you. My soul waits. In your word, I hope. For with the Lord there's steadfast love and plentiful redemption. That's Psalm 130. You see how that leads so nicely in to 131. What does plentiful redemption and steadfast love produce? Humility. Humility. 
How could it be otherwise? Forgiveness so great and so free, how could we do anything but get on our faces? When we could go from iniquities marked on a wall like a prisoner counting hours with ticks upon the wall going on for years and years and years and years. With our iniquities marked upon the wall of heaven unless there's forgiveness, but with him there's forgiveness. Not just forgiveness, but steadfast love and plentiful redemption. It leads to humility. And that humility leads to happiness. A calmed and quieted soul enjoying the presence of its mother. And that happiness leads to hope. Verse 3. Verse 3, specifically, it's preaching hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Having found a measure of humility and contentment, through the forgiveness of sins because of God's steadfast love, he now turns to others. The confidence and contentment he has found, he wants to be contagious. He wants others to catch it. And so he calls, he invites, he preaches hope. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord now and forever. Now think of the logic here. I'm not sure of it. I don't know whether humble happiness leads to and produces hope. That's the order of the psalm, but it doesn't have to be that way with Hebrew poetry. It could be that hope is the operative ingredient, and saving hope produces humility and happiness. The lines aren't exactly clear. I think it could be either. It really doesn't matter. What we have here is a happy, humble, hopeful bundle of goodness and God's glory all wrapped up in one. No surprise, we can't tell where one begins and another ends. One thing we can be certain of, though, with that word hope, that is no Bibleese. That's no throwaway word like good luck or something. Hope. That's a rich word in the Bible. It's not as we often say, I, I hope this will happen. I hope it won't rain later today. In the Bible, faith, I'm sorry, hope is a mixture of faith and joy and anticipation. It's a present reality and feeling and mindset that's rooted in the past and specifically promises of old. But it's also in anticipation of what's still to come with great expectation and joy. I've said this before. Hope is similar to a good memory. A good memory, it's certain. It already happened. You were there. You remember it. It can't be taken from you. That's something you can pull out and enjoy anytime you want. You can sort of relive it. You can live in light of it. You can smile about it. Well, like a good memory is a look backwards. Similarly, hope does the same thing by looking forward. 
looking forward to something just as certain as a memory, something just as ours as a memory. And that gaze forward should give us great joy and confidence. That's hope. That rich word, hope, is all over our Bibles, both Old Testament and New. In the New Testament, it's specifically tied to Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And not, I hope he died for me, or I hope my sins are forgiven, but hope that's like an anchor, according to Hebrews 6. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope that's sure and steadfast. A hope that's given to us according to 1 Peter 1, according to God's great mercy, which has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. He lives, and so there's no fading hope. There's no dying hope. He died and conquered death and lives forevermore, and now hope lives for those who believe. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Remember that hope is the essence of our message to the world. In 1 Peter 3, he teaches us that we should be ready always for when the world might ask us for an answer for the reason, for the hope that is within us. Christian, are you eager to share that hope with others? Have you so tasted of forgiveness in his presence and contented yourself with him and him alone? Have you been humbled by the cross in the expanse and degree and depth of his grace? That you are eager for hope to spread, for others to have it, knowing you didn't always have it. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Oh, Albuquerque, hope in the Lord. Oh, neighbor and friend, hope in the Lord. If you haven't yet come to put this hope in the Lord, I say to you, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that Calvin said we need to know ourselves and know God. Do you know yourself to be a sinner, a proud sinner? Have you felt the restlessness in your soul that sin causes? Believe what God says about your state. Don't trust what you feel. Don't trust what you've come to believe. Read the word, the Bible. Know yourself, but know this God. Know that he hates pride, so this is a real problem. But know that this God also forgives proud people who will get humble before him and admit that he's the one and that he has what we need. Know who this is. Know what he's done. Know what he offers through Jesus who died for sins and was raised on the third day. And Christian... Remember that hope is future-oriented. So don't be surprised that there's still this forward look that the Bible talks about. Hope in the New Testament is often used for our looking for and waiting for Jesus to come back. 
So in 1 Peter 1, he says to set your hope fully on the grace that's to come when Jesus comes back. Set your hope fully on what's still to come through Jesus, in Jesus, when he comes back. You can set your hope on that. You don't need to set your hope on anything else. Do not set your hope on this country, our next president. Do not set your hope on your job. Do not set your hope on your investments. Do not set your hope on friends or looks. Do not set your hope on health or your diet or your exercise plan. Do not set your hope on kids. Do not set your hope on mom and dad or even spouse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will come to you when Jesus comes back. Tim Keller says, if grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it as long as we have him. The joys of acclaim, wealth, and power are nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth, and power that we have in him. Keller says, a weaned child is not just someone who knows this in principle, but who has worked gospel truths into his or her soul as spiritually sensed realities. Internally, this quiets the soul into profound contentment and poise. The believer realizes that the reason God's actions are often mysterious is not because we're wise and he's foolish, but because he's so great and wonderful. So there it is. The happy humility of hope. Or saving hope makes us humble and happy before the Lord and before each other. This is God's saving plan. Would you bow with me? Before I pray, I'd like to ask you to take a moment for quiet introspection before the Lord. Are you letting the world dictate the tone of your life, the pace of your life, the priorities of your life? Are you enjoying God's presence these days, believer? Have you forgotten how to calm and quiet yourself before him? Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a refuge for weary souls. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broad and bold invitation to take up rest in you for those who are tired and have labored long. That can happen sometimes, whether we've been Christians for a day or 80 years, where we need a fresh to find our rest in you. May it happen here in this place for some for the very first time as they come to put their trust and rest and confidence in Jesus alone for salvation. 
May we all find him to be a refuge for our souls. Help us now as we sing in praise and in prayer to you about being our refuge, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.